You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Hi, guys. How you doing? Oh, my gosh. Guys, this is so fun. I'm Alan. I'm on staff here with Illini Life. Um, if you've been with us these first couple weeks, uh, the guy you see preaching up here normally, his name's Nick. He's one of our pastors. Um, he is racing an Ironman triathlon today in Madison, Wisconsin. He's stupid. Um, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, he is he is foolhardy at best. Um, it is impressive, that feat. Um, he's racing right now. He's on his bike. An Ironman is like a bajillion miles, I think mile and a half swim, 112 mile bike, and, and a marathon running. It's crazy. Okay, so um, so him being gone is a factor, but for all of us um, uh, here at this church, we actually, we, we do our teaching in teams. We actually have people um, on our staff team and some of our more experienced community members who share the preaching load. We like that because you get a chance to hear from different voices, um, and those who preach get a chance to do some different things as well besides preparing messages. Um, speaking of preaching, uh, did you guys see a quad preacher out this week? Anybody catch anybody like that? Okay. Um, I, um, I saw one uh, guy standing on the corner um, by the union where we do our free coffee tent. We do a free coffee tent. Come get some coffee on a Friday morning. Um, uh, but and I, honestly, I have nothing against quad preaching. This guy was solid. He was doing a good job. But there are some quad preachers who are more entertainers than gospel sharers. I don't know if you've experienced them. This guy up here is one of his name's brother, Jed Smock. You might know his crew, Sister Cindy, some of those folks. Um, they are, they're, they're entertainers. That's what they do. They're trying to gather a crowd and get attention. And um, I actually love going to hear them preach because what it gives me is a chance to, one, to hear um, the crazy stuff students at the U of I are hearing from people who call themselves followers of Jesus. Um, and then, two, gives me a chance to insert myself like, next to somebody and be like, what do you think of this guy? And like start to have gospel-centered conversations, right? Okay. And so I remember one time um, in my undergrad days, um, I was here. Um, it was right outside the union. Brother Jeb was speaking. And he said something that just felt a little too wrong. Like, you know, it's wrong. A lot of stuff he says is wrong, right? But it felt like too wrong. And so I just felt like I got to say something. I got to say something. My heart started to like race. And I was like, oh. And all of a sudden I stood up and I started shouting. And I don't remember, I don't remember what I said. I remember though, like I, I was stuck between these skeptics and the religiously misleading brother Jed Smock. Um, I keep using his name. Uh, shout out to you if you're watching our YouTube channel. Um, um, I caught, was caught between these people and I was defending my faith. I don't remember exactly what happened, honestly. I do remember a picture got in the Daily Illini later that day or later that week, which was super fun. Um, today, we're going to get into the Bible. And we're going to look at the story of a man who, like me, stood up against a crowd and defended his faith. But unlike me, ended up dying for his defense of his faith. We as a church here, um, we are at the quarter pole mark of a series we're doing in the book of Acts. Now, Acts is a big book. It's 28 chapters long. Um, and so we're breaking it up into eight messages And these eight messages are built on the theme that really the Holy Spirit is the main character of the book of Acts. God's Spirit is sending people in a movement of salvation outward from a small huddled mass in Jerusalem to the very ends of the earth. And this is the book of Acts. This is an exciting story of that um, movement. 
So I mentioned quarter pull, eight weeks, do the math. We are week three. We've gone past the quarter point. Great. Um, I'm going to be talking to you guys um, about the book of Acts chapter seven primarily. Last week we were in chapter two. How do we go from two to seven? They aren't next to each other unless you're a two-year-old and you don't know numbers yet. Um, Parenting is real. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff that happens in Acts chapters three, four, and five. Most of it boils down to this a brewing conflict between the new Christian believers and the leadership in Israel. Then sort of fighting, pushing back and forth, like imprisoning new Christians and then angels releasing them from prison, like crazy conflict stuff. And so when we arrive at Acts chapter 6, it's kind of weird because it takes a breath from that. Acts chapter 6 starts with a really practical church issue. You see, there were Greek-speaking Jews and there were Hebrew-speaking Jews. And they were both like, hey, the widows in our communities aren't getting enough food. They're, they're getting the food first. And no, they're getting the food first. And so the apostles, the early church leaders are like, we're not dealing with this. Like we've got to preach, like there's salvation scene to happen. So they prayed and they raised up a few believers. We, we might call them deacons who were to take care of the task of caring for the widows. And in that list of deacons, the very first name is a name, uh, is the name of a man named Stephen. And Stephen is who we're going to focus in on today. Um, Today, we're going to cover close to two chapters of the Bible. Don't worry, I'm not going to read every single verse of that, although that would be a really fun exercise and encouraging and maybe more important than what I have to say. Um, So we're going to, instead, we're going to pull out some themes from those those chapters. Uh, And I'm going to start in Acts chapter 6. Most of our times we mean 7, but we're going to start in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. So if you have a digital Bible with you and you want to pull it out, that's great. If you have a print Bible with you, way to go. Um, If you want to see the words on the screen behind me, they're going to be there as well. But we're going to read through some passages. Here's what we do. We read through a passage. We talk about it. We ultimately want to highlight God's word and God's truth. We're not trying to make a message say something we want it to say. We're trying to see what God is saying through his word to us. Does that make sense? Okay. So before I jump in, how about I pray? Um, that God's word would be illuminated, that God's spirit would be upon those who know him here, that God's spirit would be pressing on those who don't know him here, um, and that we'd pay attention and be attentive. So, um, Jesus, we thank you so much that you have gathered us here. Um, God, I pray that you'd be on the hearts of people here in this room, that your spirit would be moving and active like in the days of the book of Acts, that your spirit would be working in our hearts and minds, um, and God, that we would encounter you. Whatever distractions may be on our minds this this morning, I pray you'd help us um, to give those to you, to give our concerns to you, to give our worries to you, um, and then to have this scripture speak to those concerns and worries, to speak to us wherever we are at today. Amen. Okay. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. All right, if I'm Stephen, if I'm Stephen and I'm reading this, I'm like, you sure you want to go that big about me? Uh, full of great God's grace and power, performed wonders and signs among the people. Like, there is no doubt that our author of Acts, Luke, is describing a man who is in tune with God who's in tune with what God is doing in his life and in the world around him. In fact, this phrase, wonders, signs, these are an indicator in the book of Acts that God is at work. Luke is saying God is at work in the life of Stephen. So we go on to verse 9. 
Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the principal or provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Much like in the chapters that I mentioned, three, four, and five, opposition rises up and the opposition can't cut it. It's like trying to take on Kofi Coburn in the paint, like you're just not going to do it. Um, if you guys are new to Illinois, Kofi Coburn is the center for the Illini basketball team. He is going to be an NBA lottery pick probably this year. I'm going all in. So that's who Kofi Coburn is, if you're wondering. Um, so it's not going to go well to oppose Stephen. That's the point. So instead of opposing him, they start to scheme. It goes on. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Okay. Opposition. Spreading lies instead of confronting Stephen head on because confronting him is not working. And it's not a light accusation. See, it's sort of like against the big stuff, against Moses, against God, against this holy place, the temple, and against the law. It's funny though, because even they say his accusation is that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Their whole argument is built on Jesus of Nazareth being dead. So why do they care about this idea that a dead man is going to destroy the temple? Like, that's how freaked out they are about this. It's just wild. Okay. Um, he's not dead, by the way. He's risen, but they, they're building their belief that he's dead, just to be clear. Um, for the sake of simplicity, and I think what's going on here, I'm going to group these together. Instead of four accusations, we're going to put them in two, because I think they really are a pouring out of those, these two. First off, we have the accusation against Moses. Well, that pairs up with the accusation later on against the law. You see, the law is the customs that God's people practiced to say they were God's people. The problem of the day was, what is the law and what's our custom related to the law? And then Stephen's accused as well as speaking against God which I think would relate to the temple actually really well because the temple is where God dwelled. This is where the Israelites met with God. It's what made them distinctive. They had God's presence with them. It was key to their traditions. And it leads to what I would say is an epic standoff. Stephen's, his face starts to glow, which is a throwback to Moses. When Moses saw God on the mountain and came down to the Israelites, his face was aglow because he'd encountered God's presence. That's what... Luke is pointing out about Stephen that Stephen has encountered God's presence in this moment. And so the high priests question him, are these charges true? Well, let me, let me ask you guys, why does that matter? Yes, these things are, are a big deal, the temple, the law, but like we live in a society of spree, free speech. People can say whatever they want to say, right? At least for the most part, um, especially on Twitter. That's a crazy, don't go there. Um, let me, let me put it this way. The Sanhedrin, this religious council, and these things, the law and um, the temple, this is like the foundation of the society. It's like being a Bears fan and saying, Mike Ditka and the 85 Bears don't matter. Like, that is the whole foundation of their belief system. Um, that's my last sports analogy, I promise. I hope. 
what he is doing is speaking treason against the Israel, Israel society and way of life. And so they demand an answer. So Stephen gives an answer. And how we have the verses broken down in the Bible at this point, they are 52 verses worth of answer. A long speech in response to the question. I would encourage you to read this passage in, your entire, in its entirety if you have not before. In fact, if you were in one of our small groups this week, you probably did that. I would encourage you, our small group structure with our Sundays is great. We read the passage together on Tuesday or Thursday night um, in a small group. So you get a chance to engage in God's word personally to start to understand how to read it yourself. And then we come on Sunday to hear it preached by someone who's done more study and more background and work and things like that. So we kind of get to learn to engage in God's word on our own. And we also get to engage in it in the community. And I think it's really beautiful that we do it that way. Okay, so I would encourage you for next week, come to one of our Bible studies. Check that out. It really is, a, they go together. It's like the pre-lab and the lecture or something. Um, so remember, the two key accusations, the temple and the law. So Stephen, instead of talking about the temple and the law directly, he gives a history lesson. He goes through four eras of Jewish history. Of Abraham, of Joseph, of Moses, and of David and Solomon. Now, if you've maybe heard these names before and you didn't know how to place them in order, this is the order they go in chronologically. Um, Abraham is the father of faith for the Israelites. Uh, and then we go on through our history. The second thing he does besides using this history to make his case is he actually, at the very end of his speech, turns the accusation on its head and accuses the Jewish ruling council of the same things that he was accused of. And man, does he start off respectful. We're going to go into chapter 7, verse 2. He replied to the accusation, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. I just love that. He's addressing them with just like thoughtful, like, hey, we're together in this. There's not like a difference here. Like, I want you to believe the same things I'm believing. And he takes them down Israel's memory lane through history into our first era, that of Abraham. So he goes on. He says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. This is a quote from God. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So Stephen begins with their common father. He's saying, we are on the same page, guys. We are all Israelites. There's not something different I'm trying to do here. I'm an Israelite. And on top of that, as he's preaching Jesus, he is not forgetting what led up to Jesus as he's talking about Jesus. He's fitting in the context of their story. Like Michael fit Jesus in the context of his story, how God was working in his life before. God was working in the lives of the Israelites before Jesus in preparation for Jesus. I'm sure many of us can relate to that in our own stories. But what's interesting about this is, is as he's telling this story, one, these guys would have known it. They're like, yep, 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 we know. Um, but he lists, he lists the names of places. Mesopotamia, Haran. Let me tell you, this is, I think, a foundational point for Stephen's message. Mesopotamia, Haran, they are not the temple. They are not even the holy promised land that the Israelites were given, were to be given. God is speaking outside of the promised land. God is there. Now, that may feel obvious, like, duh, why is that detail important? But it's going to be key and foundational for what Stephen is saying as he goes on in his speech. 
before the land, before the law, God still chose to initiate with Abraham. We'll go on. We're going to go to verse 4 of chapter 7 now. So he, Abraham, left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him, Abraham, to this land where you are now living. He's saying God sent Abraham to the promised land where they are now. God gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. See, from the very beginning of Israel's history, God is the initiator. God is the one who initiates and presses in and offers incredible promises, not the other way around. Abraham isn't saying, God, I won't do this ever again. God's saying, I'm going to do something that you do not expect to happen. I'm going to give you a son. You're too old to have a son. I'm going to give you a son. And he and your descendants are going to take a land that I'm not even giving to you. You're going to have to trust in a promise that is not even one you're going to see. And in that, God fulfills the promise. Abraham and his wife Sarah have Isaac. Isaac uh, and his, his wife give birth to Jacob. And Jacob, who later takes the name Israel, becomes the father of 12 sons. And these 12 sons are what the Israelites, the Jews, would have called the patriarchs because each of these 12 sons becomes the name of one of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So each of the Israelites would have been in one of these tribes. They would have identified, yeah, I'm a Benjaminite. I'm of the tribe of Judah. See, God was creating a holy and set-apart people before they even had a holy place. Before they had the law, God was doing that. A lot of finger pointing, sorry. Um, I just want to emphasize the point. Okay, one of Jacob's 12 sons is a guy named Joseph. So we can go to our next era now, the era of Joseph. I'm going to read on verse 9 of chapter 7. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, his brothers are jealous of him, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his trouble. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. I love this. I don't know if you caught this, but Stephen is like, Seriously, guys, here's the point. Uh, God was with Joseph and rescued him from all his troubles. Jacob's sons, Jacob, they're in the promised land. They're trying to figure it out how to live there. Joseph sent away. Even though they have a promised land, God is still with Joseph. God is with Joseph in a place that actually God told Jacob not to go. He said, don't go to Egypt. Joseph's there, and God is blessing Joseph. And this story is incredible. Joseph's story is so encouraging. Go read it. Um, uh, it's in the book of Genesis. Joseph um, is sold as a slave and rises up to the second most important position in Egypt because he can interpret Pharaoh's dreams. He's able to see that there's going to be a famine coming, and they prepare for it. And so when the famine does come, Egypt is the place to be. And so Joseph and his brothers um, meet again. Um, this time Joseph is in the position of authority and he provides food for them and welcomes them in. I'm going to read this this verse real quick related to it um, because this is exactly what I just said. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. 
When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers to visit this place. So there's another theme here that I want to point out to you guys. I think it's really fascinating. So Joseph is rejected by his brothers. They don't like him. They don't like him because he says, I'm going to like save you guys. Like I could understand why like my little brother would not like, I would not like that. I don't have a little brother, but I can imagine it. Um, Then, so as a rejected brother, he becomes a redeemer of his family. He's a rejected redeemer. That's going to come up again. So what happens in Egypt? I would refer to you to DreamWorks' The Prince of Egypt. Um, if you have not seen it, that's fine. I'll go watch it. But what happens in Egypt, the Israelites grow into a large nation. But the Pharaoh who Joseph had favor with um, dies. About 400 years later, they kind of forget why the Israelites are there. And the Israelites become a lesser slave class. Um, so, in the midst of the Israelites becoming a lower slave class, we enter into our next era of Jewish history. That's Stephen Highlands, that of Moses. We pick up in verse 20. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. Okay, so Moses' story, another fascinating one. Again, Prince of Egypt, go watch it. Um, Moses is born an Israelite. Pharaoh says, hey, we got to kill all the Israelite kids. Moses is abandoned in a good way, picked up by, the, by Pharaoh's family, raised in Pharaoh's household, and then all this time knows he's an Israelite. Actually, about the time he's 40, goes to Israelites, um, sees one being beaten up by an Egyptian, he kills the Egyptian. He goes back the next day, sees two Israelites fighting, and one of the one who instigated the fight um, when Joseph initi- or when sorry when Moses initiates with him, he says, "Hey, who made you ruler over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian?" Again, Moses thinks, "Hey, maybe I could do something to help my family out, my people out." Rejected. And so Stephen actually breaks Moses' life up into three parts, three forty-year chunks, up to that rejection, and then from the rejection until he sees God in the wilderness. And then a third section where he leads God's people out of Egypt. I'm going to pick up at the beginning of that second section, verse 30. Um, After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. Again, places, real places. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. And he went over to get a closer look. And he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Stephen, we get it. Holy ground outside of the promised land. Holy ground, where God's presence in his presence is his holy ground, not where you build God's presence to be. God can't be confined to a place. Stephen really starts to lay in though, and he's starting to turn the theme to the law. I think he's established the place theme pretty well. It's going to go to the law. He says, verse 35, this is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? Remember, I just talked about that. He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. 
Moses, like Joseph, is a rejected redeemer. Rejected by his people only to redeem his people and to save them out of slavery. And Stephen, he's drawing a line between Moses and what's going on in the early church saying, hey, Moses did signs and wonders too. Do you see what's going on back then and what's going on now? There's a line between the two. They're connected. So Stephen then takes this rejected redeemer theme and draws it right to point at Jesus. Verse 37. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. A prophet like Moses. Let's think about Moses. Powerful, strong, signs and wonders. Rejected, and yet came to save people and release them from captivity. A prophet like Moses. Stephen is saying, guess what? He's here. His name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. Have you heard of him? And in all of this, Stephen spends most of his time on Moses in this speech. The vast amount of the time is on Moses. I think he's saying, hey, you think I don't respect Moses and I don't respect the law? Let me tell you how much, time, how much I care about him. I'm going to do it on a word count basis. See, Stephen is saying, I love Moses, but Israel from the beginning had trouble with Moses. First off, somebody rejected him, and then in the wilderness, they constantly fought with him. In fact, I don't know if you guys know this story, but they built a golden calf, an idol in the wilderness, which is sort of crazy, like a golden calf. Like, who's like, hey, that that cow made of gold is what saved us. Like, all right. Um, There's a sports joke in there. I don't have it yet. We'll go on. Um, So God, I think out of respect for them, gives them a physical place to worship his presence. He says, you guys want this thing? Fine, I'll give you a place. And he he designs and ordains the creation of the tabernacle. This physical space where God would meet with his people, the tent of meeting, God would be in the holiest of holies. It doesn't mean God was just there. That meant that that's where people could meet with God. I'm going to go on to verse 44. It highlights that. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Okay, now this is interesting because the place theme starts to take like, focus in on, oh, there is a place, this tabernacle. It's like an RV version of a temple. It's mobile. You can go around with them. Um, But it's still like a place where they're to meet with God. But does that mean it's bound to a specific place? God ordained it. Stephen's not speaking against it. In fact, he says, the temple and the covenant law go together. It says the temple of the covenant law. I respect these things. I'm not trying to reject them. And it's from this RV of a temple that we arrive at our, we take that and we arrive at our last era that Stephen highlights, that of David and Solomon. I'm going to read this in verse 45. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua, who came after Moses, brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land long time until the time of David who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. David's like, hey, we're here. Can we maybe make a permanent temple? God says, no, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Solomon does build a temple. 
And it's considered one of the wonders of that age of the earth. Like we don't have any remnants of it. In fact, these guys didn't have remnants of it. So this is how a big deal that temple was that was built. Is it doesn't exist anymore. They're not even talking about that temple. The one that they're talking about is one that Herod built after Israel had restored themselves back in their land after an exile after David. Lots of history, I know. Um, The point is, they're not even talking about the same temple. Like the place doesn't matter that much. In fact, Stephen highlights that. He goes on in verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, he's quoting Isaiah, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So Stephen, while still showing respect for the temple, saying, hey, God designed it. God said it's good. He's also saying, it's not that that's important. It's God's presence that's important. Do you see what God's presence is doing right now? And that's Stephen's defense. With history, we have to kind of draw a context to ourselves and say, how does that make sense? That's why we preach sermons to help us make sense of a passage like this sometimes. Here's what I think Stephen's making a point to say. Two things. First off, the temple isn't that important. Can we go to that next slide, Maddie? Great. The temple is not equal to God. It's not that important. It's important, but it's not that important. God's presence is more important than the temple. He's not blaspheming God. He's saying, yeah, the, the temple matters, but God's presence matters more. And secondly, he points out the disobedience to the law. He says, you guys were consistently out of step with Moses. Historically, out of step with Joseph. What God was doing, God's people have been out of step with. And he says, you are like them. So much so that he just says, hey, you are like them. We're going to go on to verse 51. Um, He says, and this is where he flips the script. He goes from history to turn the accusation on its head. He says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. Those who predicted Jesus coming, even up to John the Baptist. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, the righteous one, Jesus. You who have received the law that was given to the angels, but have not obeyed it. See, Israel, these people, these leaders, they were given the law. They said, we've got it. We've got the law. We've got the place. Like, we're big stuff. We're big man on campus. We got it. The problem is they're rejecting the Holy Spirit in the process. And Stephen is offering a critique for the people there that I think is deeply applicable for us today. So I want to take us to there before we go back to the end of Stephen's story. The first thing that matters to you guys today, to me today, to us today, is that God is not bound by a place. Now, I don't think we think this way. We don't have temples. We're meeting in a lecture hall, for goodness sake. But let me tell you, it feels like God is closer in the mountains, doesn't it? It feels like God is closer in the Grand Canyon. It feels like God's closer in the ocean, whatever it might be, whatever that place is, where we feel like God is, like somehow the, the space between heaven and earth is thinner. 
It's not just because the air is thin. It's because something is beautiful, right? But God is also in the mundane. God is in lecture halls. God is evident in your junky college apartment or a nice college apartment. It's one or the other. Um, God is in those places too. God is with you when you go to class. God is with you when you go to the bathroom. God is with you always. Your entire life is lived in the presence of God. So while we're not tempted to go to holy places to encounter God, sometimes we are. I think we are tempted to believe that there are places where God can't go with us or God won't go with us. But God is with you. And the reason we know is because of exactly what Stephen is talking about, the Holy Spirit. To acknowledge that God is not with us is to, as a believer, to reject that the Holy Spirit is with us. That's the first thing. The second application for us, the thing that I think I want you to hear from Stephen through my words, is God's presence is not bound by our practices. Again, the physical trappings probably aren't a thing for most of us, the, the places. But let me tell you, how many of you feel like I can't interact with God without a quiet time, without a devotional time, whatever you want to call it? Like, I didn't get my latte and my Bible, and I didn't Instagram it, so I don't know if I really spent time with God today. I mean, it's, it's hyperbole, right? But you get the point, right? Do you believe that God can work with you when your life is too busy to spend a quiet time? Not that I'm decrying devotional time or time with the Lord distinctively. My point is God is with you in all of your practices too and all that you do. Do you know that God works in other languages and other places differently than here? Do you know that the traditions of the American church are largely American? This is important, right? Because sometimes we get caught up in our practices as if they were handed down to us by God himself. But they are actually us taking God's law and trying to make sense of it in our day. And sometimes we hit a home run and sometimes we strike out embarrassingly. And the church should be the people who best acknowledge that. Who acknowledge, yeah, we screwed up. We did not, we were not in step with the Holy Spirit. We missed it with our traditions, with our practices. I want to encourage you, do the spiritual disciplines. Read your Bible, pray, spend time in solitude, fast from food, be silent for a time and just listen. But let me tell you, God is not just in those things. God is with you when you're at the checkout line, deciding whether to buy this thing or that thing, and then putting the one on the edge and feeling guilty about it. God's with you in that. God is with you when your newborn is screaming, Alan Abbey. God is with you when you are failing the test, and God is with you when you're finally understanding the concept in your studying room. God is with you in everything that you do. Um, we sing a song in our house. Um, God is with you in everything you do. Genesis 21, 22. There you go. Um, we got that from Bible Study Fellowship. It's awesome, guys. Anyway, I'm tangenting. Um, so maybe, maybe, I don't know if this just feels like, for me, really important. Maybe you are seeing... You're in an era in your life where you're seeing the hypocrisy of whatever church you grew up in or the American church and thinking those traditions are messed up. A lot of people are calling that, the, that's a cultural thing right now where people are deconstructing a worldview to build a new one. Let me encourage you to do what Stephen is doing. 
Stephen is deconstructing the culture with the scripture, not the other way around, not deconstructing the scripture with the culture. And so Stephen is saying, yeah, there are things that we do wrong. Let me point you back to the Holy Spirit. And I encourage you to do the same. When you run into things that feel like they are wrong, check it against the scripture. Check it against God's holy word. Check it against, let's do it together in community. Come to me. Hey, Alan, I have a question about this thing. This doesn't sit right with me. Let's talk about it in God's word. That's how we're going to arrive at truth. That's what Stephen is doing. But there are some who will oppose you. Just like Stephen was opposed. Not everybody is going to oppose you, but some will oppose you. Some won't care. But these guys cared enough to do something about it with Stephen. I'm going to go back into Stephen's story now, okay? We're going to pick up in verse 54 of chapter 7. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And there's a little addition. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll get to that in a second. It is such a visceral passage. Covering your ears, screaming, rushing, people doing that because of your faith. Let me point it out here real quick. The faith, following Jesus, this is the response some people will give when you're really speaking biblical truth. Not everybody's going to oppose you, but there are places in our world where people are receiving this kind of treatment for their faith in Jesus because it is terrifying to those who hear it because it challenges the way we see the world. And my hope would be, I would be someone who would, in my sin, be terrified of the message of Jesus and have that sin rooted out of me, that I would repent of that so that I can be just excited about the message of Jesus. Does that make sense? Like, I don't want to be above God rebuking me through a passage like this. So Stephen, for his faith, is killed. He's the first Christian martyr that we have on record. Sometimes truth can cost us everything, every earthly thing. It cost Stephen his life, but he seemed pretty content in it. He saw the presence of Jesus with God up above him. Like how sweet a gift that was God to give him. But truth, when it's spoken, can also sometimes lead to greater things. You see what happens next. This Saul, who had coats laid at his feet, he was overseeing this execution. Um, He is given permission to start a persecution of Christians in Jerusalem. They are terrified because they're they're being taken into prison and being rooted out and gone door to door and found out and arrested. And so the the Jewish believers who became Christians, the followers of Jesus, followers of the way, they scatter. They leave Jerusalem. And they go throughout Judea and Samaria. If you were with us in the first week, um, Jesus says, this is what's going to happen in this book, this, in this time, this early church. You're going to take the message from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And Stephen's execution, which is meant to stop something, 
The persecution, which was to stop something, leads to greater things. So I would encourage you, let the Bible critique the culture. Let God critique you. Remember, God's presence is with you in what you do and where you are when you have the Holy Spirit. Let that critique you. Let that affect you. And then know that when you speak truth, sometimes it doesn't seem like it, but greater things can happen and are happening. God is at work. We're going to hear about that work in Judea and Samaria next week. I mentioned, check out one of our Bible studies, Tuesday at 7.30 at the Ike, Tuesday at 6.30 at the Klepper House for grad students and community folks, Uh, Thursday at 7.30 at Craner on the East Steps. Like, check out one of our Bible studies, get engaged in the passage, and come back here to hear how God is working in Samaria. And I pray that God would be working in you today as we worship him in song. So we're going to go do that. I'm going to pray, invite our musicians up, and we're going to sing to this God who is with us right here and right now. Does that sound good? Let's do that.